Welcome to the Leadership Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jono White. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Clarity. We are an Australian-based consultancy that works with leaders around the world, and our passion is to invest in people to become everything they're meant to be in order to fill the world with healthy organizations that people love to work for and customers line up to buy from. The goal of this podcast is to invest in you and your leadership. If you're just joining us for the first time, then feel free to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there. The most popular being our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from around the world in all different sectors give their in-depth answers on leadership, what books they love, what they found most challenging, uh, the most meaningful stories, how they how they structure their time through the day. That's free, so go and check it out. And we'd love to interview you about your leadership. I believe you have advice from your experience, your context, and your life so far that is important and can help other leaders. It's also a great way to give back. It's free to get involved, and you can do so by going to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest, or just Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form that pops up. We have a free resource for you on our website. It's called Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook. It has interviews with 10 world-class leaders, and you can go to consultclarity.org. It's right at the top and get that today. Uh, We also have a daily email that we send out to over 15,000 leaders, and that email contains the highlights, our best content from our podcasts, our blog, uh, my book, uh, the books that we're loving that are out there about leadership, It's also the best way to get access to our masterclasses and workshops before anyone else. And there's also exclusive and limited uh, special options just for subscribers. And you can subscribe by going to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe. Now, my gift to you is to work incredibly hard to provide the best leadership content I can to invest in you and your leadership. So if you're finding our content helpful, if you find this podcast helpful, then your gift to me uh, could be this. If you if you do find it helpful, then write a review or rate our content and make sure you subscribe or follow. I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is. It really does help us to get the word out there so we can invest in more leaders to become everything they're meant to be. It also means a lot to me personally when people like you and people in our community share our content on social media. So if you do that, then please do look for me, Jono White, to tag me and look to tag Clarity uh, on whatever platform you're on. And our team, including me, I'm always looking to see when people have mentioned us so that I can engage with you. And also we look at sharing content. So if you if you write something about something we've done, there's also a good chance we'll share that with our followers. So if you could do that, that is a massive, massive help as we try to invest in as many leaders as we can around the world. Last of all, you can check out my book about how to deal with difficult people even if you hate conflict. It's called Step Up or Step Out. It's available on Amazon. You can just look up Step Up or Step Out John O'White or you can go to store.consultclarity.org forward slash book and check it out there. I have coached leader after leader after leader and in more than 50% of the sessions, this topic comes up. How do I deal with this person? I'm finding it really difficult and, and I just want to find a way that doesn't blow up to do a really, just to have a difficult conversation, to lead them better. How do I do that? There's a three-step process that I outline in this book that I believe can help you. Okay, let's get into today's episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Gabriel Schneider, and uh, Gav, as he's known, is the CEO at the Risk to Solution Group, and uh, really interesting. (laughs) Uh, I was just saying before we clicked record that there's a lot that I think Gav is an expert in that I don't really know anything about, so I'm excited um, about this conversation, and plus, uh, Gav is based in Brisbane, where I am. 
best uh, best part of the world in Australia. Uh, no, I'm, I'm still waiting on my sponsorship from Tourism Queensland. Maybe Gav can help me with that. Welcome to the podcast, Gav. Thanks, Jono. Happy to be here. <laughs> hey, um, as I said, uh, you know, it's your your bio is uh, is really um, amazing when you look at the different things that you sort of specialize in and your experience. So, for our listeners, can you tell us? about what you do as a, as a group, um, your company, but also um, in your role? Sure. So the Risk to Solution Group is Australia's most awarded integrated cyber risk management business. Uh, we consist of five divisions, a security division, a medical and health division, a training division, our technology division, and our consulting stroke culture change division. And part of what we try and do is drive a proactive and preventative methodology to stop bad things happening, but enable our clients to grab opportunities and develop a robust learning culture to take advantage of you know, what we've all seen happening around us, which is volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, or VUCA, mm. as it's often referred to. Mm. Uh, now, one thing that I know you are really passionate about, and in fact, I think you you really created this this concept of pre-resilience, uh, I know that we're going to uh, sort of talk about your story in a moment, but can you just give us a quick um, overview of Presilience and maybe we can come back to it? Sure. So just a bit of background. About six years ago, we actually partnered with uh, ACU Executive Education to redevelop and deliver their postgraduate program in the psychology of risk, where I've served you know, part-time as a program director. And we've probably certified maybe th- two, 300 people through that program. And we, we kept finding that you know, this idea of risk is a negatively centered concept and people don't want to take risk or don't look at risk in a positive way. And you know, we started then focusing on this idea of resilience, which has become a very popular descriptor between floods, fires and COVID, but still found that you know, risk and resilience are really two sides of the same coin. Risk hasn't happened yet. And resilience is what you need to get through something bad when it happens. But so many things are avoidable. And we often don't put in the effort to proactively stop something bad from happening, like a pandemic. And, you know, the the losses and consequential impact of proactively mitigating these things can save so much pain, so much financial stress, that it's worth looking at the proactive prevention piece. But in Mm. addition... You know, as we go through these hardship pieces and demonstrate our resilience, often we learn a lot. And the world of resilience really is centered around how quickly can we get back to where we were before we were disrupted. But Mm. in reality, you know, every disruption comes with opportunity and we can learn through it. So that was the birth of the idea of pre-resilience. And uh, it's now evolved into a consulting methodology. We've got training programs in it and we're certifying registered resilience practitioners. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it. I think um, uh, specifically around leadership, uh, this word resilience, like you mentioned there, is something that comes up a lot on, on the podcast and, and building resilience. And, and uh, But I, I love the idea of resilience, so I can see why it's just from, just from that quick overview, I can see why people are leaning into it so much because I think it hits the nail on, on the head uh, around the one of the challenges we scratch our heads around around our approach um, because we we are you know reacting instead of actually trying to to get ahead of that and see the opportunity so interested to hear more about that but let's um let's start by hearing a bit of your story gav i, I guess if we start with you and your childhood and and growing up you know what are some of the moments or even themes from that season of your life that really shaped you into the person and the leader you are today Thanks, Jono. And uh, conscious of time, so we'll, we'll give the abridged version on some of these. Uh, <laughs> so, so I grew up in South Africa and I was a very sickly child. Um, there were some doctors who actually said I'd never exercise my whole life. And wow. I started training in martial arts when I was five. Um, I'm 45 this year, so I guess my 40th anniversary. Um, and uh, just basically through the martial arts and you know, physical focus, built myself up and had really good mentors and teachers. And by the time I finished high school, I had two second degree black belts and I was on the South African Taekwondo team. And, uh, you know, I think the discipline and the focus and the mastery of making your body and mind do what you want it to 
really stand you in good stead when you have to lead. And uh, probably my journey into being a leader started when I was 14 and had to start teaching classes. And uh, as, a, as a youngster teaching adults, yeah, the, the leadership component is a critical one and the ability to be able to command presence, command attention, but also motivate people to perform and push them past their perceived limits is something that really uh, is fundamental to being a good leader and something that you know I'm always working on, but it probably started way back then. And uh, yeah, that mm. was probably in terms of my formative years, that's, that's probably where it started. And uh, my career kind of built from there. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, I, I appreciate you sharing vulnerably around around some of those challenges. But it sounds like you really turned that around you and your family um, in terms of and doing some of that in you know despite um, people saying you wouldn't be able to. I know this is a this is a tricky question, but it just sort of comes to mind. How did you do that? How did you and your family? face that down some of your health challenges and it would have been so easy to be chatting with you and you say oh i was always always told that i wouldn't do that and that never happened but you obviously didn't and and how how did you how did you turn it around and do that and um do you know what i mean i think that's that just popped into my head and i could imagine listeners asking the same question well i guess uh, as a prelude to our conversation you mentioned you're a new parent so yes you know i think there's no doubt that uh, parents have a very strong influence on you know not only who we are today but how we got there and who we'll be mm. but uh you know i was very lucky my parents had uh, uh different strengths and my father was very disciplined and focused and was quite a, a, a performance driver and my mother was very loving and nurturing and i think between the two of them it helped a lot but uh I have to say the the other side of my upbringing was I always loved business. In fact, I set up my first business when I was five. Um, I went into business with my sister, breeding hamsters and selling hamsters to pet shops. <laughs> and uh, throughout my school career, I always had some sort of business venture, whether it was uh, marbles or selling popcorn or any anything that would sort of create commerce and trade was always of interest to me. And, uh, you know, I think a few things. One... If we talk about attributes, uh, the ability to stick with something and be disciplined is really, really important. And I think it's a bigger challenge today than it's probably ever been. We're so distracted and so information overloaded. It's hard to get that stickability. Mm. And uh, I think that's a crucial success factor that if it's not instilled when people are young, it's much harder to get when you're older. So I think, you know, it was a combination of those things. But also i was just very lucky in some ways that i had really excellent teachers and exposure to really excellent teachers and different particularly in the martial arts side of things you know people that would push me and bring out the best and Mm. not necessarily accept you know limitations yeah absolutely so what were i'm interested to know what were some of the first leadership opportunities anything come to mind where you remember yourself in a role where you were first managing people whether whether it was in sport or whether it was in school whether it was later in work where you were managing people responsible for a project casting vision you know what what comes to mind so i set up my first martial arts school at the age of 14 teaching out of my garden and uh you know that that was a full-blown business where you know i was charging people to come and train and we'd run classes regularly and you know it was the first time probably in my life experience where people were looking up to me in terms of behavior, in terms of attitude and in terms of performance. Mm. And I think it's a piece that people often don't integrate properly that leaders also need to be good exemplars and good teachers. Yes. uh, If we want to get the best out of those around us. So I think that was probably one of the early pieces that was uh, definitely influential for me in terms of the style I have today which, you know, I work really hard to have a balance between, you know, collaborative and empathetic as well as directive. And uh, yes. you know, I'm sure we'll explore that a bit later. But, you know, I think getting out of your comfort zone, and, and that happened to me, you know, throughout my uh, formative years. But also when I finished high school, 
I landed up living in Israel and I was a living student of a guy by the name of Dennis Hanover, who's considered the grandfather of martial arts in Israel. Hmm. And I had many humbling experiences there. You know, I arrived there as a, a semi-arrogant, cocky 18-year-old <laughs> uh, with two second-degree black belts behind me and thought I knew what was what and pretty much just, you know, got, got proven otherwise particularly for the first three months, uh, you know, yeah. where I trained there was a very hard school of full contact. And uh, it was exceptionally humbling to think you know something and then realize mm. you don't and have to start again. And it's been a, a really good development attribute for me because I, I guess as an entrepreneur, I set up my first business 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we learn so much from what doesn't work and we have to continually yes. be able to have that open learning mindset. And if you, if you don't learn that early, it's quite difficult to change habits or be open to doing things better or look for the opportunity out of adversity. Yeah. So, you know, I was lucky to have many experiences like that, which also included, you know, having to motivate and be an exemplar to people who didn't speak the same language as me, didn't have the same cultural background as I did. Uh, and, uh, you know, funny anecdotes too. Uh, I stopped teaching kids martial arts uh, not too long after my first few overseas trips because uh, one of the first groups I got given to teach when I got to Israel was a group of 44 and 5-year-olds who spoke no English and I spoke no Hebrew. And uh, <laughs> they basically just ripped me apart. So, you know, it, it, it was interesting to start learning, uh, you know, even limitations there that you can be the exemplar, but if you can't relate and communicate properly, it's exceptionally difficult to get anything done. Yeah. Oh, that's a great story. Um, so I, I'm really keen to chat more about resilience um, in, in a moment, because I think, I think a lot of leaders who are listening will be really interested in, in, um, in having you unpack a little bit more about that. Um, but one other thing I want to ask first is, uh, and, and you know, we talked about this before we clicked record, uh, Gav, but maybe we can um, do another episode down the track and talk a bit more in depth about some of your background. Sure. Um, but uh, any any aha moments from your time as an entrepreneur and a leader that really stick out to you in the in the past twenty years? Any moments that are ingrained in your memory because whether something went well or went really terribly, it was a really formative lesson. Uh, a moment that you that you won't forget that really taught you something pivotal. Uh, there are so many, Jono. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I think the key reality for any sort of entrepreneurial leader is the acceptance that it is hard. And we have this mm. perception that, you know, I'm going to come up with a great idea and people will just buy stuff from me because I've got a great idea, whether it's a product or a service. Mm. And, you know, I guess in the start of my, my my very first business, pressure was much easier. I was 23 when I started my first business. I had no dependents, so it was really low risk to kick off the first venture. Yeah. Uh, when I kicked off the Risk to Solution Group, which was an evolution of what I had started before, uh, a business called Dynamic Alternatives, uh, a it was almost frustrating to start again. But I think the other piece. That, that really is important is that uh, you've got to be able to persevere and keep adapting until you start to find these things that work. And mm. that part, unfortunately, you know, uh, Angela Duckworth written a book called Grit, which I, I'd strongly recommend to your listeners. Yeah, yeah, um, great book. Yeah, so if you, if you know it it's, it, it, it's, it's a good example of how people who are able to persevere tend to succeed. Yes, but I think that part we often miss, and I think one of the other pieces that you talk about aha moments. Mm -hmm. uh, there's probably two that I'll highlight. The first one is the acceptance that with success, some people will just not like you, no matter whether you yeah. try and do the right thing or whether you try and set the right example. You're gonna get haters if you're successful at anything. Mm -hmm. And I still remember it was probably six years into my first business where somebody came to me you know, who worked for me at the time and said, oh, XYZ, who's one of your competitors, was saying, you know, you said this and this and this and you haven't done this and you haven't done that. I remember looking at them going, but that's just blatantly untrue. Mm. And, you know, I think the challenge of accepting the fact that, you know, not everyone will like you 
and you'll never always win popularity contests as a leader is a very hard pill to swallow but it's also an empowering aha moment when you realize that doing right being a good leader and achieving ethical results doesn't always come with people liking you Mm. it's a very difficult pill to swallow but when you do it certainly is an aha moment and then i think the second one and uh, i I love to teach off this model but there's a really excellent book called tribal leadership which was Mm -hmm. based on uh, written out of uh, research done at university of southern california and what i really like about their model is they highlight stages of leadership Mm. and for your i guess for your listeners who are not familiar with it there's five stages they talk about stage one is you know the bottom where performance is the worst and people tend to be dominated by the mindset of life sucks stage two is a step up there where they feel their life sucks so big step up because they realize life doesn't suck for everybody it might just suck for them Mm -hmm. stage three is the the stage where i'm great and you're not and stage four is where we are great and stage five is you know life is great and i think you know when we talk about aha moments most of our leaders today were bred to be stage threes and i'm sure many of your listeners will will uh, relate to that that in order to be successful you have to actually push to that point where you go i'm great and you are not but there's an epiphany stroke aha moment turning point (laughs) where you realize that you can do so much more when we're great Mm -hmm. and that you can just achieve so much more when you get an aligned team and aligned group of people moving forward and you know that part is more uh you know a self-realization as opposed to something you can teach but it's incredibly powerful and if i look at the team that i've built around me now and the business i've built now compared to my first business you know our culture is great where people love working for us motivation is very rarely a challenge but it takes a lot of work to try and keep a team at the we're great stage and concentrating on putting your energy into others, not just your own growth and your own profile. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that. So one of the first, I mean, the first one you mentioned there is around people not liking you. How, how have you dealt with that? How did you manage to overcome that bitter pill to swallow when you realize, oh, wow, okay, if I'm going to be successful, people are going to not like me? So I think there's a few pieces that are really important and you know, anybody successful who tells you they don't have mentors is, is probably lying because we, we all have people who we bounce things off who can give us an independent opinion. And mm. I think having mentors helps you tremendously with that. And, you know, I always recall my main martial arts teacher who, you know, set up a huge uh, global empire and was constantly getting stabbed in the back by people. Some of those people, you know, were training with him since the age of five and, Mm. you know, were now in their thirties and had set up schools or gyms under him. And then somewhere along the line would, you know, sort of betray him and just do their own thing or go with a competitor. And his advice to me was always, you have to be bigger than it. Mm. And, and that piece of trying to be bigger than it, I think is, it's very easy to say, but when you get it right, and it's, it's, you know, it's a mantra I've often repeated to myself when these things happen is, mm. you know, you have to be bigger than certain people's pettiness, you know, certain people's perceptions. And I think one of the biggest pieces that I'm probably most proud of is I've never purposefully done anything I felt was unethical. You know, some people mm. might have read decisions that I've made as not being fair but I'm pretty yeah. confident I can look myself in the mirror every day and know I've made the best possible decisions based on the information I had at the time and the knowledge mm-hmm. I had at the time. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. You can always look back and go, I could have done something different or better. But, you know, that, that ethical confidence in your own behavior and your own decision-making makes it much easier combined with, you know, mentors and people who can support you to realize that, you know, it's not a popularity contest and you know, even if it was, you could be super popular, but not successful. And you might have lots of people that look up to you, but you could be a terrible leader. And, uh, you know, then it's just a matter of time until you're not successful. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's well said. I think it is a, it is something that you need to, 
you need to have your perspective. And I love what you mentioned about mentors because there's something about actually chatting with people who've gone through to the other side of that and they're still alive and they're still, you know, um, they're still successful even though they've had their, that, that challenge themselves. Um, I want to go back to resilience uh, and I appreciated you giving the overview. I, I'd love to know um, for leaders out there who were jotting down, you know, the the idea when you mentioned it before and going, oh, that no wonder this is, um, you know, as, as the creator of the idea, you know, I can see why people are leaning into it so much. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm interested to know what would be a starting point for people who are wanting to ex- explore this. And at some point they, the answer for them may be to get in touch with you and actually work with you or one of your consultants on that. But where can people start in terms of changing their thinking around this idea of resilience? Cool. Great question. And uh, once again, we're probably not going to have enough time to dig deep, but let's go through some of the ideas and basics. And I think there's a few things people can start with on their own. But a good starting point is we've got an information website, presilience.info. And there's a whole bunch of free videos and explanations on that. You can also Google the term. There's a whole bunch of interviews and discussion pieces on that. But what we've really found, and if you go to presilience.edu.au, you'll see we teach this as resilience, leadership, and high performance. Fundamentally, because the three pieces are all interwoven. You can't achieve resilience without leadership. And you know what's the point of having resilience and great leadership if we don't get performance outcomes? So we've linked these pieces together. And I think one of the important things we have to realize is that most, and I'm assuming a lot of your listeners are people in leadership positions, whether it's in not-for-profit schools or ASX-listed organizations or even the government. Uh, One of the things I think we find is that over the last 300 years, we've had this managerialism centricity, this focus on planning, organizing, monitoring for productive outputs alone in a very systemized structure. And managerialism works exceptionally well when we have a high degree of control and a high degree of certainty. And I would urge your listeners to look around and Mm. go, how much control do you have in reality versus the control you think you have? Mm -hmm. And how much certainty do you have in reality compared to what you think you have? And the question almost inevitably will be, we have far less control and far less certainty than we would like to believe. So the fundamental piece is actually learning that business as usual now is actually working through disruption and change on an ongoing basis. And actually, the business as usual component is, is getting less and less, you know, the certainty, stability and you know, the ability to do the same thing over and over again. That, that's what's becoming the exception. Having to pivot and change is becoming the norm. Yes. So it's, it's a fundamental mind shift that people have to have, but it's exceptionally difficult. Uh, you know, the gift of teaching the psychology of risk for the last six years at a postgraduate level is we, we've had so many smart people you know, CEOs, mm. chief risk officers, and, and to be honest, sometimes frontline managers who, you know, might be low in rank, but high in challenge in terms of what they have to achieve in their jobs, yeah. have shared their challenges with us. And most of them seem to be focused on three levels, which is how we've mm-hmm. built our resilience modeling. Level one is knowledge of self or the ability to master yourself. Yeah. And I always say this to almost anybody we teach, train, or even when we're consulting, you know, if, if you can't even control the thoughts in your head, what comes out of your mouth and the way you behave, why do you think a team would follow you? <laughs> and, you know, that's the next step. If you can then sort of manage those pieces and control them and guard them, the next piece is the other's piece. You know, how do we guard, motivate, corral and, you know, organize others so we can get high performance? So, you know, if you look at the first two levels, self and others, it's not a surprise. You know, anybody who's looked at basic leadership or, you know, Daniel Goleman's emotional intelligence knows that those two components are critical. What mm. we found is missing is the next dimension, which is the organizational dimension. And we tend to almost have the separation between what the organization wants versus what individuals and teams want. Mm. And with the managerialism centricity in mind, we found that, you know, most organizations that are 20 years older or 20 years or older are built on systems that are outdated with hierarchical structuring that was highly effective when things moved slowly and are Mm. struggling now in the modern era to actually adapt, pivot, and be quick enough to respond to changes. 
Whereas organizations that are younger than 20 years often have the opposite problem. They're really good at responding, but they don't have the systems or the structures in place to be able to scale and get consistency and reliability. Yes. And, and that's just a general observation. Obviously, there are you know, groups or, or organizations that don't fit into either of those molds. But I think understanding a bit of social psychology and that we are wired to work in groups of eight to 150 and that even a small business of 20 people is probably made up of two or three tribes. And mm. those tribes have comp often have competing values. So when we start looking at that third dimension, that organizational dimension, it, it really is important to look at how we glue people together based on common purpose. And then how do we align performance based on a very simple ethical model we like to teach, which works on four levels. It's got to be good for me, good for you, good for us, and ideally good for the greater good. And if you can tick all four of those, you don't need risk management, just do it. But in reality, very few decisions will tick off all four of those. And if you're able to tick them off so quickly, chances are there's big cognitive bias in play there and you're coming up with a narrative to suit your agenda as opposed to really looking at the challenge and the problem. Yes. So, so when we look at the resilience piece, it really is focusing on three aspects at those three levels the first aspect which you know i'm sure anybody who's had to manage anything particularly in australia which is highly regulated compared to other parts of the world is compliance and unfortunately mm -hmm. many organizations and many leaders stop at compliance they go as long as i comply i've met my you know minimum requirements i'm meeting my duty of care i'm meeting my fiduciary responsibilities i don't have to do more but you know you, ca you can't comply yourself or your organization to success. It's always a reactive backwards looking approach. So we, we need mm -hmm. to move past compliance. And, and that's where I think the stage of resilience really lives, which is where we accept the fact that, you know, sometimes things will go wrong. We have to have enough toughness, enough redundancy, you know, whether that's financial, human or cyber assets to be able to overcome a disruption. And it's interesting to see, you know, it, it breaks my heart often where, you know, we overdo these lean ideals, we overdo just in time, you know, manufacturing and ordering methodologies, we try and run the leanest possible structures, which, you know, when we have a high degree of control and certainty work well, but the second a disruption kicks in, we tend to fail, or yes. have unnecessary hardship. And when we get those first two pieces, right, the compliance and the resilience, we can then move mm. to that resilience mindset where it's proactive prevention and opportunity centrism coming into play. And in reality, it's a combination of those variables that enable you to achieve a resilience-based mindset, mm. which, you know, people go, okay, that sounds great, Gav, but why bother? The answer is very simple, you know, performance. If you want to have better performance for yourself, for your team and your organization, understanding how this stuff works and using it in practice makes a huge difference. So... Yeah. Yeah, that, that's no. probably it in a nutshell, but there's a lot more yeah. to that. <laughs> no, I can hear, I think anyone listening can hear the <clears throat> hours, days and, and, and weeks, you know, for the right, for the right client where this is, this is the next step for them to really see breakthrough. I can, I can see how you and your team would be uh, going much, much, much deeper, but I appreciate the quick, the quick insight. Uh, any stories of clients who have been able to take you know the resilience framework and see it really transform performance anything any case studies or any stories that, that come to your mind that you could share for people who are maybe they've heard it and they go it sounds great but how would that work for me sure um i'm not necessarily going to name clients but i'll talk about examples so yeah yeah a pretty big federal government department um we, we actually rolled this out and, and i think this is the other important piece for your listeners to be cognizant of the names are not as important as the results so if you have to call resilience something else if you have to call leadership something else it doesn't matter what you call these things it's the uptake and the success you have of initiating these sort of change stroke performance projects that counts so mm. we ran this project as a risk intelligence project and risk intelligence for me is a fundamentally critical underpinning aspect of resilience and We've got our own definition of risk intelligence, but it really is an applied attribute living skill that enables you to grab upside opportunity while minimizing potential negative outcomes. Yeah. So if you want to look at the resilience model, it's risk intelligence in practice. 
So the project we ran there was a risk intelligence project, and it was fascinating to see that uh, we landed up taking uh, two divisions out of this organization and scoping a few things. And what started off as an initial, hey, let's just roll out a bit of risk and decision making, it actually turned into a change project. And it's really interesting to see how that stuff works in practice. Uh, so we've had some pretty good success with that with you know government clients, APRA registered, or sorry, APRA regulated financial institutions have been pretty good as well as rails, rail operators. And we have a pretty big contract at the moment with one of the airlines doing something pretty similar. But a case study that I'm very happy to share, and it's one of those that really kicked this stuff off for me, was a project we did back in South Africa with my first business with uh, one of the world's largest emerging market banks, Standard Bank. And there's a whole case study on this. So if any of your uh, mm. listeners can contact me, I'm happy to share it. But yeah. really what we landed up doing was training 23,000 people for them over a period of three years and taking what was a switched off disconnected culture and switching it on. And what was fascinating there is we didn't know it was cultural change. We thought it was just training. And, you know, along the way, mm -hmm. the results were incredible. <laughs> and there were so many learnings from that that we use in a lot of what we do now around things like making sure there's you know, a whiff of what's in it for me, for the individual. Because mm -hmm. if the individual isn't connected to any project, the stickability or success of it is going to be exceptionally low. You know, gluing it back to a common purpose and a purpose particularly that's good for, you know, the individual, the team, the organization. And, and ideally, if you can get it, it's not always easy to do it, but good for the greater good too, makes it much easier. But, you know, these sort of large scale change projects uh, are rare and we, we found it it's often better, particularly with uh, a bunch of our clients. We've got a Queensland government department now. We've got a pilot project proposal sitting with them. Uh, is, is to start with a smaller pocket of the organization and prove that the stuff works and that people perform better and you have an enhanced way of communicating, uh, particularly with things like silo busting. So if you look at most modern organizations, one of the biggest risks they have is the siloism and the turf protection that evolves from that and that vulnerabilities often manifest between the silos. And you know, I'm sure you've experienced this where people have the you know, that's not my job or that's not my department, so I'm not going to bother mentality. Yeah, yeah. Which, <laughs> you know, is, is, is one of the biggest hindrances to high reliability performance. So, you know, some of the noticeable signs when you do this stuff right is your people are able to self-correct. So you don't always have to necessarily, you know, coach them, moder moderate them according to KPR performance, etc. They actually have the ability to correct their own performance and have that self-awareness, which is incredible, but they also can start transcending these silos and actually reach out. And one of the biggest uh, learnings we had was actually with Anglo-American, who were mm. one of our first clients with integrated risk. And this was just as the GF, uh, sorry, just as the mining downturn was starting to ramp up and they brought us in because they were at a point and, and this was done out of head office back in South Africa. Uh, they brought us in because there was a there was about to be a, a note that was sent around the entire business saying you need to stop using consultants because things are getting tight. So our our project there was how do we get them to use internal expertise across the businesses to solve problems instead of having to bring in externals the whole time. And it it was a fascinating learning because <laughs> on the first workshop we actually ran with them. We, we, we realized that they, they can't talk the same language. They all work for the same organization, but different silos were using different terminology to describe the same problem or the same challenge. Yes. And it's, it's one of those things that's fascinating, you know, because we've become so specialized in our vocations over the last hundred years, uh, you know, accountants have accounting language, you know, HR people have their own language. Executive managers have their own strategic language. Frontline workers have a different language. Safety has its own language. Risk has its own language. And we actually forget the fact that we don't talk to each other really well. So one of the things we found is instead of trying to, you know, literally get everybody to understand each other's languages, creating a, a common operating language that everyone can talk to each other with across the organization. 
tools like that tribal leadership piece we discussed all using the compliance mm. resilience resilience mindset enable different silos within the business to to communicate effectively and get stuff done so yeah so, you know there's there's many more examples of that but uh you know on a strategic level that's where it works really well but i think some of the things we're most proud of and we've got a very broad service offering across the group we we actually run australia's only dedicated occupational violence prevention practice as well and like some of the most yeah. rewarding feedback we get is from some of those frontline services where somebody comes back to us and goes you know i was almost assaulted or that training saved my life uh you know and those sort of those sort of things are highly rewarding and uh it makes it makes what we do awesome yeah no thank you for sharing some of those um some of those stories and, and that i can see why that's rewarding um well as we as we wrap up let me ask you a couple of leadership express questions gav and then we'll uh uh, we'll, we'll also make sure we mention where people can find out more about you and uh, Presilience. Um, so the first question is, what, what's a book that you've gifted to other people? So, so probably the starting point is uh, my book. I've written two. But uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, one, of the, one of the best parts about running a postgraduate program at university is you can tell students what to read. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so uh, my, my intent was actually to author... Uh, you know, almost the textbook on the psychology of risk and enhanced decision making. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've been blessed to have worked so far in 17 countries, I've probably traveled to more than 30. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we often find, because Australia has so many great things going for it, there's almost an expectation that I don't have to worry about my own safety or security, somebody else must do it for me. And, you know, in the world we live in, let's just look at cyber risk, for example, nobody else can protect you. You know, you're the one who has to make sure you don't click on the wrong link or go to the wrong website or let somebody else access your system, don't share your credentials, etc. If we look recently, there was a, a Nielsen's IQ survey looking at the Australian safety index and a staggering amount of Australians are scared to go out at night. So, you know, when we look at things like mm-hmm. that, uh, it was a big driver for me. So I wrote a book called Can I See Your Hands? And, uh, you know, a guide to situational awareness, personal risk management, resilience and security. And my goal was really to try and address the personal skills and tools that we all need to keep ourselves and our family safe first. So, you know, it, it was good advice I was given once. Never, you know, you never write a book to make money. And uh, it's been a really good mm. business card. I've given away a lot of them. I have sold nearly 4,000 or 5,000 of them too, but uh, I've given away plenty too. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good answer and well-deserved. I think um, it's, uh, yeah, it's always natural if you've written a book because you're so passionate about it, then that's the book that you give away. So no, I love that. Um, what's a recent leadership lesson you've learned for the first time or been reminded of? Uh, uh, so definitely a good reminder coming out of COVID. I think almost all your listeners will resonate with the almost COVID hangover stroke haze that's affected both the purchases of services, but also our staff. And, you know, I've got a great team. They're awesome. And, and we were noticing internally, you know, almost a sluggishness or, you know, sloppy mistakes that were happening. And uh, one of my mentors, uh, a lady by the name of Catherine Day, she's awesome. She's also Brisbane-based. You know, always, always kept saying to us, you know, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. And uh, you know, that's something mm. she shared with us ages ago. But we've sort of gone back to that now, to sort of shake out the uh, COVID hangover residue. And you know, it's it, it's not a trust thing. I trust my team implicitly. They are awesome, but when people are not performing at their highest, we've got to make sure we inspect and double check what's actually happening, not what we perceive is happening. Yeah, I like that. You don't get what you expect, you get what you inspect. That's uh, that's good, that's a good line. Um, What about any other great pieces of advice you've received? So so many to list, but uh, I I think in, in the short term, you know, the world is changing so quickly. And we're moving from this era of hyper-specialization into a more robust era of generalization where people have to have a general understanding of lots of skills and maybe only specialize in one. 
as opposed to historically where people could just specialize in one thing and do that forever. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I've had different pieces of advice over the years around this where people were telling me, you know, only do one thing, find the one thing you're really good at and focus on it. Um, if any of your listeners go to our website, you'll see we do lots of things from providing nurses, doctors and paramedics to, um, you know, providing security support and risk and culture change. And I think it's really important now, and it was advice I was given ages ago, and we all hear this, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. But in a fastly change, or in a fast changing dynamic environment, we do have to have a bit of diversity to our offerings. And, and I think that's quite important for anybody looking to thrive through, you know, the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity that's going to continue. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't, don't just focus on only one thing. But on the other hand, you know, don't spread yourself so thin that you can't be good at what you do. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's an interesting, uh, interesting perspective. Last question. If you could only give one piece of leadership advice to a young leader, what would you say? Don't be scared to fail. Yeah, that's good. Great advice. Don't be scared to fail. Um, well, for those who this has really resonated with them and they want to find out more about you, about Presilience or about any of the other uh, the other sort of things that you do that you just mentioned, there's a bit of a variety. Where can people find you and the organization online, Gav? So probably the best place to connect with me is on LinkedIn. Uh, our business, uh, the primary business website is risktosolution.com with the letter two. But there, if you just search for Presilience, you'll see there's a few websites that pop up and a bunch of information there too. And, uh, you know, there's also a bunch of groups. I am also the chair of the Institute of Strategic Risk Management for Australia and New Zealand. And that's a really great place for thought leadership and knowledge sharing and thinking about big problems. So if you, you don't have to be involved in risk to contribute to that. And it's uh, a place that we'd really love people to become more involved, regardless of whether you are interested in risk or not. If you're interested in strategy and management, which every leader should be, it's a really good place to get some ideas and share knowledge. Yeah, well, uh, thank you so much. I, I want to I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Um, I know that uh, you would have gotten a lot out of today. There'll be a lot of people Googling Presilience and, uh, and finding out more about Gav. And uh, uh, don't forget, I also have the John O'White Leadership Podcast and the Leadership Question of the Day Podcast that listeners can check out to continue to invest in your leadership. But I want to finish today by saying a massive thank you to Gav for being so generous with your time and, and sharing... Um, what I think is a really uh, a game-changing uh, framework, resilience, and, and sharing that with us. I know that will have helped a lot of people. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. And thanks to your listeners. And thanks for having me, Jono. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast as much as I did. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there, including our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from all over the world in all different roles, in different industries, answer these seven questions on leadership and leaders give these in-depth answers around how they spend their time, uh, a book that's been significant for them. It's just a gold mine. It's completely free to access. So go to consultclarity.org and look for that. We'd also love to interview you about your leadership. I believe your experience, your life, your context means that you have advice on leadership that other leaders can learn from. Yes, you, if you're going, not me. Well, no, I really believe you would have something to add. So if you're looking for a way to give back, it's completely free to get involved. And we would love to interview you through the seven questions on leadership. You just go to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest or Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form and get involved. We have a free resource on our website called the Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook, 10 world-class leaders giving their thoughts on leadership, and that's completely free. It's available on our homepage, consultclarity.org, right at the top. So make sure you go and get that and download it today. 
And we have a free daily email that you can subscribe to. We send this out to over 15,000 leaders from around the world. And uh, it contains the highlights of content from our podcasts, our blogs, um, our books, books we're reading. It's got the best content and it gives you exclusive, limited early access to our masterclasses, workshops, new products, special offers. It's all for our subscribers. You can go to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe and join 15,000 other leaders. And you know, my gift to you is to work really hard, particularly through the Leadership Conversations podcast. I have been blown away by the quality of the leaders and I'm learning as much as anyone in doing these interviews. So I'm having a great time. And my gift to you is to keep lining up the best leaders I can to invest in your leadership. Your gift to me, if you're finding this helpful, there is something that you could do that would help us out massively. And that is to write a review and to leave a rating for our podcast or wherever you're watching or listening to this. I can't tell you how much that helps us out. Also subscribe or follow. It really does make a difference in helping us to help more leaders become everything they're meant to be. Another thing that means a lot to me personally is when I see our community share our content. So if you do share this or any other piece of content on social media, then thank you and and please do that. And look for me, Jono White, or clarity and tag us in your post. Our team is always looking for posts to engage with from our community. And there's also a chance that we'll share your content uh, to go beyond and share it with our followers. Last of all, you can check out my book. It's called Step Up or Step Out, How to Deal with Difficult People Even If You Hate Conflict. I wrote this book because 50% of the coaching sessions I have with leaders, this topic comes up again and again and again. And it's this idea of how do I have this difficult conversation? How do I lead this person better when I'm finding them difficult? Or in some cases you look and you say, I think I might be leading a difficult person. They're just quite difficult to lead or I'm finding them quite difficult to lead. So there's a three-step process that I unpack in step up or step out. And the amazing thing, and I've literally done this myself, and I've heard it anecdotally from other leaders as I've coached them, is that if you follow this process, you will see that person step up and change their behavior or make a decision, which is to step out some of the time. Uh, 95% of the time, people will step up or step out in just four weeks. And I stand by that. It's uh, You have to read the book to understand, but uh, I really do believe in it, and I've experienced it firsthand. It works. So you can go to Amazon, look up Step Up or Step Out John O. White or store.consultclarity.org forward slash book. Well, thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back with a new episode next time of the Leadership Conversations podcast. And I hope today has helped you to take another step towards becoming the leader you're meant to be. See you next time.